Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. This is the last topic that we will be discussing pertaining to God's sovereignty on our salvation. And so we started affirming that we as men are totally depraved. We just did not have the capacity to love God. But the good thing is that the election of God of us is unconditional. And so despite of us, God chose us. And then we look at, I think, the hardest of these five subject matter to accept, and that is limited atonement. And yet, if we just look at and use the lens that the scripture provided for us, we understand that Jesus only died for his own. And then last week, we look at the irresistible grace of God. And it has to be an irresistible grace because we're dead. And, and God has to bring us to life without asking us for permission. Because I really think if the Lord came to me and asked for my permission, if he can regenerate me, I would surely say no to him. And knowing my totally, my total depravity. So this morning, we will be looking at the last one, which is the perseverance of the saints, which is as good news as the first. Oh, total depravity is not a good news. As unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace. Perseverance of the saints is a kidneys for us. And perseverance of the saints, that's why we have our subtitle, God's preservation, is, is really a display, a manifestation of God's working in us, our preservation. And if we talk about perseverance, I'm pretty sure that I don't need to explain it to you. You basically understand what perseverance. Sometimes if I look at my own sermon and I could not stand watching me myself for one hour because I find myself boring and dry, I, I would have hoped that I could sit down where we, you are right now and I could experience what you experience every time you listen to me on a Sunday so I would understand how much you need to persevere listening to me for one hour. Just by sitting there on Sundays, would already tell me that you understand perseverance. A most serious note, a true believer doubting his salvation because he sinned against God is a Calvinist version of the Arminian's version of a lost salvation. A true believer, a Calvinist believer, doubting his salvation when he sinned against God it's a Calvinist version of the Armenian's version of a lost salvation. It, may, it might sound a bit bet, better than those who would openly say that they lost their salvation and they have to regain it again, like our Catholic friends and our Armenian friends who thought that when you, as for the Catholic, if you sinned against God, what they call as mortal sin, you need the second plank of justification, and that's penance. Or for our Armenian bro uh, 
I don't know, Armenian friends, our Armenian friends, they would have to ask that salvation again. But it, for me, it sounds a little bit similar. It's still doubting if the salvation that you were once so sure of still stands after you sinned. Isn't it? How many of us I've heard not saying that I've lost my salvation, but, but doubting if you really have salvation. And yet, you have forgotten that at one point in your life or many points in your life, you were so certain that God has saved you. So I would be a little bit sympathetic every time I hear a brother, if he is saved or not, because it is a teaching from Scripture that sometimes hard to reconcile, especially after you sin against God. If we are assured of salvation, we might even argue, why did the Bible say that only those who endure to the end will be saved? Where does the problem lie when it comes to our understanding of salvation? Every time we doubt our salvation for whatever reason, where does the problem lie? I want to present, as we have our introduction to this topic today, two general problems that I can perceive. One, a myopic view of salvation. When I say myopic view of salvation, it is a salvation that only focuses on justification. And many believers, and probably also in the church, we are just focusing on justification. When we think about salvation, we think about our justification, that I stand before God declared righteous already. But salvation is more than just justification. As big a foundation is justification to our salvation, salvation is more than just justification. Notice that if you look at your scripture, you will find different tenses when it, comes, when it comes to salvation. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And if you are not aware, you might be lost and say, so which is which? Am I saved? Am I being saved? Am I to be saved? Well, that, those are things that if you find that in one of the numbers of the multiple choices, choose the all of the above. Because you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You are justified, but you are still being sanctified, and you will be glorified one day. All these are true. And so if we understand that when Jesus died on the cross and the Father saved us and chose us and brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation as far as the Father is concerned is the whole salvation. And he will certainly complete that salvation. The second thing that I find as a problem is a man-centered theology. Man-centered theology has wrecked havoc, not only in our theology, but even in our practical lives, more than we would ever know. On the one hand, it has caused 
so many believers to boastfully insist their choosing of God. But on the other hand, these same people who were in fear to lose their salvation when they sinned. So far from creating worship to God and security in their hearts, man-centered the theology has resulted to boasting and fear. I don't understand. This week I was engaged in social media on an exchange about God-centered theology and man-centered theology. And what I could not understand is that why the, do they find a man-centered theology better than God-centered theology? Why is it better to think that you choose God rather than God choosing you? Why do you find it more beautiful that you are the one who is in control of your salvation than God is the one who's controlling your salvation? So can a believer lose his faith and salvation? This is basically what we will be talking today. Can you be saved at some point, but then you are unsaved along the journey? Can you lose your salvation? Let's settle this today, not if we have a God-centered theology, not if we understand that the whole salvation is kept in heaven for you by the power of God, as, Paul sa as Peter said. In 2 Peter chapter 1. As far as the writer of the book of Hebrews, a Christian should be growing in maturity. If you look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, which pertains about your assurance of salvation, and let's move on to maturity. In fact, in light of his exhortation to his readers in chapter 6, and try to look at verses 11 to 12 and verses 18 to 20, we understand that a hunger of, Christian, of a Christian for God's word should be growing, should be growing. So it is a wrong thinking to most of us that, that in the past, when we were a new Christian, we were hungry for God's word, but along the process, we just lost it. That is not the normal we find in Scripture. That is not at least what the understanding of the writer of the book of Hebrews. As you grow in your mature, as you, as you mature in the Christian life, as you, are, as you have been a Christian for more years, you are supposed to be growing in your hunger for God's Word. In fact, he even expected some of these people to be teachers already, chapter 5 and verse 12 said, for now, you should be teachers. And I want to have a segue a little bit today for those who are called to be teachers. You know who you are. You know that you have a gift of teaching. You're not supposed to be sitting down there being fed with elementary things. You should be, but at this point, be teaching God's Word. There should be more teachers in the scripture. Our goal is you will only see me in the pulpit twice a month. Because we have raised up teachers in this, in, in, in this church. Elsewhere, Paul expected Timothy to progress in his life and teaching. I want to lay down a little burden to us, which 
especially the men, because men are called to preach God's word to the congregation, you're not supposed to be fed with elementary teachings. You are supposed to grow and be teachers. So this is supposed to be the normal journey of believers. We are supposed to be growing continually. That was the expectation of the writer of the book of Hebrews. But because the writer of the book of Hebrews learned that they were stagnant and has lost their enthusiasm in knowing and obey the word, chapter 5, verse 11, the writer used, I don't know why the writer did not write his name in the book. So I can just say Paul or Peter. We always say the writer of the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 11, used the word dal. And dal means stupid. Or you could not understand. He said, you have been dull in your, in your obedience to God's word. And then later on, I think in chapter 6, verse 12, he used the word sluggish. And sluggish is the word dull. He wrote to them to assure them of their forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the supremacy of Christ, and the promises that come along with it. And then steered them up again. So as a pastor, I've learned something here. That if you see your congregation losing their desire to know more of God's word, you have a problem. And you're supposed, I am supposed, the leaders are supposed to steer them up to know God's word again and obey God's word again. But the thing about the writer of the book of Hebrews, despite of the fact that they were growing dull in their understanding of the word, he was still fully convinced that they're saved. Chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. We will be looking at more of that, but you will read there that he is certain of their salvation. Although used by Allah, Hebrews chapter 6, to prove that one can lose his salvation. On the contrary, Hebrews chapter 6 teaches that the gospel will result to our transformation instead of our rejection of it. And the believer's certainty of God's promise, the believer's certainty of God's promise of God's full redemption in the gospel should cause them to persevere. So far from those who claim that Hebrews chapter 6 teaches that one can lose his salvation, Hebrews chapter 6 is actually teaching that you cannot lose your salvation. So why do true believers persevere to maturity? Here's my big idea this morning. Our perseverance, our perseverance is an exhibition, both of the gospel's transforming power and our faith, sorry, in the promise of God for us in Christ. Jesus. It's supposed to be our faith in the promise of God of full redemption. Our faith in God's promise of full redemption for us in Christ Jesus. So we have two points today. Perseverance is a display of the transformation wrought by the gospel. And second, perseverance is a display of our faith in God's promise of full redemption in the gospel. Perseverance is a display of the transformation route 
by the gospel. It is one of the fruits. Later on, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5. For those who are, who understands the gospel and they go through suffering and they produce endurance. They produce perseverance. It is, it is one of the fruits wrought by the gospel. As I've said, the Jew, these Jewish Christians, the writer was writing to, has lost their enthusiasm to learn God's word. They were not growing the way they should. Their dullness of understanding of God's word resulted to them being sluggish. Again, that word sluggish there is exactly the word dull in chapter 5 and verse 12 which we can draw something there, that our dullness in the understanding of God's word results to our dullness of obedience. If you want to know why you are so dull and sluggish in your obedience to God, realize, you will realize that you have lost the appetite for God's word as well. Or if you may, because your mind has been filled with sin, don't be, don't be surprised that you do not want to obey God. What fills our mind? is displayed in our lives. Despite of their sluggishness, though, the writer of the book of Hebrews separated them from those who have fallen away. Of course, he was addressing these believers in verses 1 and 2 to stop searching around. And notice, by the way, in verse 1, he says, let us. He included himself. That pronoun is very important which means he was writing to believers that he did not doubt that they were true believers. So he was addressing them in verses 1 to 2 to stop circling around their assurance. So think about it. These people might have been in church for 5 to 10 years, and after 5 to 10 years, they were still talking about the gospel if they are really sure if the gospel of Jesus Christ can really save them. He says, and they were talking about, you know, should we really put our trust in the Lord or our, our practice, the practices of our religion? And he has to say that you have to leave the teaching on repentance from dead works. You should have graduated. That's, that's theology 101. How they should put their faith in God? Should we go back again to explaining that you need to put your faith in the Lord and that they should not be stuck again on trying to understand that the ceremonial things of the old co covenant were but shadows that point to Christ. And that they should go unto maturity. He was clearly addressing here those who were true believers in his estimation because in verse 4, notice, in verse 4, he contrasted those in verses 1 to 2 to those whom he addressed in verse 4 as those. He no longer said us, but he said those. But those, then he defined them in verse 5. Who are these those? He said those who have fallen, those who have fallen away. So he's talking about another group of people. When he said that those who have fallen away, he was not referring to those whom he addressed in verses 1 to 2. 
Some said that the writers seem to be making a hypothetical scenario, creating a hypothetical scenario that somebody who tasted the gospel, who tasted the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who have been blessed by the preaching of the word, even manifested the gift of the Holy Spirit, but then who have fallen away. He said, they said that it might be a hypothetical scenario, but it seemed to me that these were real people who were in the church for a while but have fallen away. Either way, what is important is that the writer did not associate himself or the readers to those who have fallen away. He did not associate themselves. Those who have fallen away, according to verse 4, let's look into this one a little bit. Verse 4 to 6, it reads, What is impossible, um, he said, for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. These were almost Christians. These were almost Christians. They seem to understand, they seem to, to be enlightened, seem to relate the spiritual experiences of the Holy Spirit, seem to even experience the joy of receiving the preaching of God's word and even manifest a sort of gift that resembles that of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I believe they themselves said, oh, we have tasted it. Don't sell the gospel to us. We've been in church for 10 years. Whatever you have experienced, I've experienced it too. What, what did you experience? A preaching of God's word, being blessed. I've cried so many times. But the writer of the book of Hebrews openly declared that they were almost Christians and were not genuine ones when he said that they have fallen away. Isn't that scary? Isn't this scary thing to think that we experience the experiences of a true believer when we are not so that, in the, so, so that along the way we will give up the faith? How worse? How worse did these people go? As, as I look at it, for a writer to come to a point of declaring them apostates, how worse did these people who fell away for the writer in his vantage point to say that it is impossible, it is impossible to restore these people unless, as he said in verse 3, God works. Unless God permits. How can you such a thing? How can you say such a thing? How can you be so raw, rough to these people? How can you be so hard to these people? Are you God to say that? We have seen believers falling into immorality. And you know what? God restored them. What is with these people that you said it is impossible to restore them again to repentance? Now what? And what we are talk about to look at distinguished and apostate from a guilt-stricken, condemned believer. So an apostate from a guilt-stricken, 
condemned in the heart, but a believer. What's the difference? Because you might be feeling right now, you need to distinguish that to me, Pastor, because I, there are times I feel like I'm not a believer. Distinguish that to me. Listen to what he said in verse 4, and then we'll jump to verse 6. For it is impossible, and we've already talked about to whom he refers this one in verse 5, verse 4 to 5. But jump with me to verse 6. For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again. Highlight that two words, once again, the Son of God. That is the problem there. These people were not people who have fallen into immorality. These people were not people who have stopped coming to church for a while because they found a girlfriend somewhere. These people, <laughs> these people were people who wants to crucify the Son of God once again. It seems to me that they are no longer believing that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. And they're saying they need another sacrifice than that which was already laid, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, referring to the sacrifice of Christ, is the only foundation which we can build upon. But now they are saying that they need another sacrifice to mean that they are denying the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that is the difference between an apostate and the one who just found a girlfriend somewhere. We're beginning to look at this one because this resembles the unforgivable sin. This, according to the writer, to their own harm. What does he mean by that? The writer continues, which the next or the last part of verse 6 seem to say the reason why it is for their own harm, and that is they hold Christ up to contempt. What does it mean when they say they hold up they hold him up to contempt. It means they charge Christ for claiming the sufficiency of his work for salvation when it is not. These were hardened people who were guilty of unbelief. This resembles like the unforgivable sin, and the unforgivable sin is choosing to deny Choosing to deny that which is obviously from God. You know, these, these people, when Jesus displayed the power and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and it is clearly from God, but they choose to attribute it to Beelzebub. They choose to attribute it to the devil, although it is very clear that it is from God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly the sufficient salvation of God and they said they've tasted it, but at some point they're saying, I no longer believe in it. That's not true. That's fake. I need another sacrifice. I'll be released and, and realize I'm not an apostate. Anyone who has reached this point, humanly speaking, have reached to a point of being so hardened that from human vantage point, it is impossible to restore them again. 
to faith. This are the people that the writer of the book of Hebrews warned his readers in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, when he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But look at verse 14 of that chapter. He separated the believers and says, now that would not happen to you. For he said, for we who have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So unless God will choose, because he can still choose, he saved Saul, who was a destroyer of the church. And if God so find pleasure to save even the worst, he will. But unless, but humanly speaking, for those people who are deconstructed, that's the name, that's the term that it's used today, they could be deconstructed what they used to believe. Joshua Harris, I still have several books of him in the shell. But as I look at him, from my vantage point, he has reached the point of no return. For a Christian to suddenly join the Pride Parade in Canada is telling me you're so hardened. You're so hardened to support even the, the Pride Parade. He went there. And that's enough to tell me, if not of the grace of God, he will continue down the road of destruction. Now, why this? Why was this the attitude toward, of the writer toward those who have fallen, and on the other hand, towards his readers? What was his understanding? What was in his mind that he confidently said that what happened to those who have fallen away will not happen to true believers whom he was writing to? Now, Hebrews chapter seven, 6, verse 7 to 8, is his theology behind those words. We find his theology in verses 7 to 8, and it reads, For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop, Useful to those, who, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, they are the one who receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, it is, and its end is to be burned. This is the writer's version of Jesus' parable of the sower of the seeds. Although in Jesus' Parable, he used the seed as the metaphor of the gospel. Here, the writer used the rain as somewhat a metaphor of the gospel. The rain will fall in one place and it bears useful crops, but on the other place, it bears fords and thistles, which is, according to the writer, worthless and near to being cursed and its end being burned. Unless one bear Fruits, in keeping with his understanding of the gospel, he is not saved. 
he did not receive the blessing of salvation from God. Unless one bear fruits in keeping with his understanding of the gospel or as a manifestation or a display or an exhibition of his understanding of the gospel, that person is not saved. And the, and the display of the understanding of the gospel is not rejection of the gospel. It is transforming into the image of Christ. This explains the difference between those who have fallen away and those whom the writer was sure of things that belong to salvation. Those who have fallen away, they fell away because in the first place, they really did not understand the gospel. They eventually denied the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ because they never really experienced its power to save. But on the other hand, while these believers were getting dull and sluggish, and I'm not trying to encourage you that it's, go, it's okay to be dull and sluggish for as long as you are saved. No, I'm not. But while these believers were getting dull and sluggish, they were still working and showing love for Jesus' name in serving the saints. If you look at verse, I think, verse 11 or verse 10, I think verse 10, useful crops that belongs to salvation because they were true believers after all. So a true believer will persevere because it is a display of the transformation wrought by the gospel in them. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, as he was talking about sanctification, says, not only that, not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. There goes. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Perseverance is one of the fruits of the gospel. Therefore, the expectation of the writer of the book of Hebrews for these believers was that they will overcome their sluggishness and imitate the faith of those who inherit the promises through faith and endurance. Uh, there's something we need to put here. We are not saved by our endurance, but, the, but our salvation is displayed by our endurance. So at the end of the day, those who are truly saved will endure to the end. They will endure to the end. So for our set-up committee, endure to the end. Because I see that you are falling away. And there are only few who are left. I'm afraid that only few of you are saved. I'm just joking. Second point. Perseverance is the display of our faith in God's promise of full redemption in the gospel. Perseverance is a display of our faith in God's promise of full redemption in the gospel. So if on second one is that it is a display of our understanding of the gospel, the second one is the display of our faith that we believe in the promises that we have in the gospel, which is the full redemption. 
So the writer of the book of Hebrews here is exhorting these believers to hold fast to the gospel. Look at verse 18 there. B, by encouraging them of the certainty of the promises of God in the gospel. So what else can you use to exhort believers to hold fast to the gospel, but the certainty of the promises of God? Abraham was an example of one who patiently waited and obtained the promise in verse 16. We understand with how God assured Abraham that God wants his people to operate on security rather than doubt. He wants his people to always be secured in their heart. God's idea of faith is not like the idea of many where one should just hold on even though he knows nothing, more like operating in the dark. You know, and, and some would even find that it's a noble faith when you do not know and it's dark and just lip even if it's dark. And you call it faith. No, that's not faith. A faith in the scripture, God would do everything to make clear his promises and then he wants you to hold on to that promise. He wants us to operate on the light, in the light. He wants us to operate from security. He does not want us to operate from darkness. He does not want us to operate from doubt. He wants us to be assured. God wanted Abraham to have the full assurance of the promise. Verse 17 says, and I really love that. It says that God wanted to be more convincing. He wanted to be more convincing. And I see that and I realize this is a reflection of God's humiliation. When I say humiliation, God's ability to go down to our level, which of course, perfectly displayed by the coming of Christ. He really wanted, or he really went down to the level of Abraham. God did not have to make the pinky swear. You know what I mean? He said, I will do this. Let's have pinky swear. God doesn't have to prove himself. He is God. He could have said, this is my promise, take it or leave it. No. He wanted to show more convincingly. He wanted Abraham to be fully assured. He gave the Holy Spirit to us so that we would always know that we're saved. Because he wanted us to have assurance in our hearts. There are two things that God did here to do that. First, the purpose of God is already unchangeable in its character, according to verse 17. It is unchangeable in its character. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Genesis chapter 17, where God gave again his promises to Abraham, in Genesis 22, he repeated it again. In all of these promises, we know that God said, I will. I will. And because it was God who's speaking, we understand that the I wills here carries with it an omnipotent power and will that cannot be changed by anything or anyone. And my I will can easily change to I might. Eventually, I won't. On Sunday, let's, we will do this. It's raining. 
on the day that we want to do that, we might do that. It rained all the more and we said, we won't do that. But the I will of God carries with it his omnipotent power and unchangeable character that it cannot be changed by anything or anyone. It carries an unchangeable character. But second, it is already unchangeable in its character, and yet God made an oath. God swore by himself. In verse 17, clearly the writer was looking at Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18. I don't have to go there for the sake of time. You know that I'm trying to preach to you for 50 minutes. I'm trying to really do that. Looking at, clearly was looking at Genesis 22, 15 to 18, particularly verse 16, where God said, by myself, I have sworn. By myself, I have sworn. When the writer of the book of Hebrews said, here in verses 13 to 17, let me quickly read this one. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, yeah, I was thinking, to whom will God swear? To Abraham. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And that's Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God, to show more convincingly, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Again, God need not to make an oath as, he, as if he, he is to be doubted, as if his promise did not carry an unchangeable character already, or as if God is capable of lying. He is not. It said there it is impossible for God to lie. But the only way, why did God do this? But the only way for Abraham to, be, to fully grasp the certainty of God's promise was through that which was familiar to Abraham. According to verse 16, the culture of Abraham's time was that when one wanted to assure somebody of his promise, he, did, he, does not, he will not do the pinky swear, but he would swear to someone greater than him. That's their deity. Where the person would somewhat pronounce curse upon himself. Curse upon himself if he would not be true to his promise. We have our own version of that today. Promise I'll do this. If I'll not do this, mamatay ka pa. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. They swear to someone greater, to a deity of a curse if he would not do it. And Abraham was so accustomed to this, to this culture. And look at God in his goodness and grace to Abraham. He went down to that level and made and swore to Abraham. Made an oath. Although he did not make an oath to anyone because there's no one greater than himself. He made an oath 
to himself before Abraham so that Abraham would be certain in his heart that by hook or by crook, God will accomplish his promise. By hook or by crook. But more than that, so now Abraham had two unchangeable things. The, the promise itself and the oath that God made. But more than that, Abraham was truly assured because if promises are made to be broken for us, sinful, weak human beings, it is yes and amen to God who never lies. It is impossible for God to lie, says verse 18. And this has certainly assured Abraham so that he obtained the promise because he waited patiently, according to verse 15. And this experience of Abraham, of being certain of the promise, is not unique but true to every believer. This is not unique to Abraham. In fact, I would say that they have something, we have something to hold greater than the oath that God made to Abraham. God gave Abraham the word, but God gave to us the incarnate word. The fulfillment of God's promise says to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, will be when all of God's people from all nations will be gathered around Christ, which has not happened yet. And clearly, the writer of the book of Hebrews did not consider the promise as well to have been fully realized because he encouraged these sluggish believers to persevere to the end by holding on to the promise of God. But again, unlike Abraham, who can only hold on to the promise and the oaths and the God and the God who never lies, or sorry, the God who never lies has gone a long way already as far as accomplishing his promises when he gave his son Jesus Christ to atone for the sins of his covenant people so that the very thing that would have stand in the way of God to accomplishing his purpose, namely the sins of his covenant people in breaking the laws of his covenant have been taken out. So Hebrews 6, 19 to 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is our forerunner. He went ahead of his people. And what does it mean for us? If Jesus has gone before us behind the curtain, then his people who put their faith in him will follow him there. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that we can enter behind the curtain as well because Jesus has gone before us. If Abraham had a whole oath to hold, we have Christ to hold as our assurance that we will go to where he has gone ahead of us. 
and that is in the presence of God. My journey, it's hard, but my journey would not end with me giving up on the side of the road. My journey is hard. Your journey is hard. But let us be assured that this journey will bring us to the very presence of God. Why are we so sure? Because our forerunner has gone ahead of us. Through the Holy Spirit, who illumines our hearts of the work of Christ, every true believer, and if you're here today, every true believer is sure of the fulfillment of the promises of God so that they will hold fast to the end the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. When we persevere, church, it is more than just gathering our strength to continue. It is a display of our faith in the promises of God for us in Christ Jesus. At least this is how the writer of Hebrews presented it here in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 to 20. What is at stake? What is at stake is not our reputation of being strong enough to hold on, but the genuineness of our faith, which is displayed by our certainty of the promises of God. It is no wonder why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not that we would not grow weary, but even as we are, grow, even as we are weary, we are still sure of the promises. So we're back to our big idea. Our perseverance is an exhibition, both of the gospel's transforming power and our faith in God's promise of full redemption in Christ Jesus. That is how important it is. Because it tells us that the gospel bore fruits and we have received blessing from God. At the same time, it is our way of displaying that I believe in the promise. If true believers display their faith in the gospel and God's work of, of preservation by their perseverance, their meditation should be the promises of God. If we are to display, our meditation should be the promises of God. Verse 11 tells us, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. If we are to run with perseverance, we have to fill our minds with the promises of God. See, we are living in a very dangerous time when social media occupies our hearts and minds. Our mind is filled Unless our mind is filled with the promises of God, we will be sluggish and we will lack strength to persevere. It is the promises of God that steers up to endure in our pursuit of knowing and obey the word obeying, of knowing and obeying the word of God. So unless we are like Christian, and not, not Christian, Christian in the pilgrim's progress, 
if you read that, Christian in the Pilgrim Progress who sets his mind in the celestial city, that I will be there in that celestial city. I will be there in that city that is not made by man. Unless we set our mind to the promises of God, we would lack the enthusiasm to persevere. We will be like runner who will just force ourselves to finish the race instead of being excited to cross the finish line. If our study and meditation of God's word is not listed in our priorities, we will never have the time and strength for it. Our priorities, whatever our priorities, will always eat up our time, our money, our resources. Haven't you noticed why in some things you always have money? But on other things, why is it that it is so hard to shell out money? You know the explanation? It's not your priority. You want to know your priorities? See where your, your time, your money, your resources were spent. They said balls don't lie. But this thing won't lie. Check where your money Check where your time, check where your strength went, and you'll know your priorities. And here's the problem here, because many of us, many of us knows, know that God is not our priority. And here's the problem. You've been like that for some time, and you're okay with it. That's being sluggish. You're not supposed to be okay with it. This is exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews was trying to address. Because a Christian is not supposed to be that way. He's supposed to have all the energy, the drive, the enthusiasm when it comes to knowing and obeying the word of God. For this is the proven way to persevere. A race towards the finish line has become hard and heavy because our minds are filled with sin instead of the promises of God. And listen to the admonition of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have been surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And instead of our mind filled with sin, we look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faiths, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is when we are filled with the gospel of Christ that our race becomes light. May we indeed fill our minds with Christ and be assured of the promises of God for us in Christ Jesus so that we will not be sluggish, but imitate those who inherit the promise through faith and endurance. Perseverance 
is the expected result of our true faith in the gospel. Thus, we should continue to hold on to the gospel and its promises instead of doubting it and its promises to keep us until the end. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.